Hello, working people of Southwest Washington. You're listening to episode number 19 of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council and sponsored by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 48. We're also a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network with over 100 radio shows and podcasts for working people just like you. Find out more about the network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Shannon Myers. And I'm Harold Phillips. Before we get started, we always want to remind you that the views and opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council, its affiliates unions, our guest unions, or employers, not even their attorneys. Nobody but themselves. Everybody hates an attorney until they need one. But before we get into that, Shannon... I hear that people don't want to work, huh? All these signs outside of businesses, nobody wants to work, right? This is a weird situation that we're in. You know, first of all, there are reasons that people aren't going back to work. Number one, child care. Number two, elder care. But here's another thing, Harold, that we have, I think, been experiencing. You hear people out there, people are lazy. They don't want to go back to work. Stop paying them all these benefits and they'll go back to work. Well, if you paid people enough and you treated them well, I'm sure they'd go back to work. And if they're getting more money on unemployment and benefits from the government than they do from the job that they are at eight to 10 hours a day, That doesn't make sense. No business person. That doesn't make sense. Aside from the pay issue, some places that people haven't been able to work at during the pandemic just don't treat their people all that well. The boss, the manager, there could be a lot of issues, especially in a non-union workplace. And the pandemic has given people time and distance to think about whether we want to go back into a situation like that or whether we want to find a workplace where we're going to be treated better by management. Yeah, sometimes workers aren't just treated badly, Harold. Sometimes management withholds wages. They don't pay them for overtime work. They tell workers that they have to work off the clock. They get harassed. There's favoritism. I mean, The labor law violations just go on and on and on. But a lot of working people don't know much about labor law. They might not know the difference between a bad boss that just doesn't treat them very well and an actual violation of the law. But don't worry, listeners. That's why we've brought on a couple of experts on labor law for this episode. So you, our audience, can know what to watch for in your workplace. Now, before we get into this, I just have to point out that while this episode's guests are lawyers, nothing they say on this show should be taken as legal advice. If you have a situation in your workplace, please reach out to a qualified legal professional to discuss it. So, with that said, let's start local with Diana Winter, General Counsel at the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 48. Thanks so much for joining us, Diana. Happy to be here, Harold and Shannon. And as a disclaimer, I just want to let the audience know, Diana is one of my best friends in the whole wide world. I'm so glad you're here, Diana. Oh, another disclaimer. We're full of disclaimers on this show. So a lot of people don't know much about labor law. 
can you give us some examples of some misconceptions about labor law that you've run into in your career? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that employment law and labor law are interchangeable. There certainly can be some overlap, but those are not inherently the same things. For example, I'm a labor lawyer. My client, as you mentioned before, was IBW Local 48. And so I advise them about things that are specific to labor law and labor unions. I talk about grievances, which is when there's been a violation of the contract that our members are working under. I help with negotiations for contracts. I also on occasion help them with what are called unfair labor practices. Those are violations of the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act. That's specific to labor law, labor unions, the requirements for unions and for employers that have organized employees. Employment law can cover a lot of other things that don't necessarily intersect with labor law. For example, if you are not an organized worker, you don't have a contract, your employer is therefore not going to violate your contract because you don't have one. But they could still, as you were mentioning earlier, violate the law about whether you're getting paid minimum wage, whether you're getting paid overtime like you should be, whether or not you're being sexually harassed or discriminated at work. Now, some contracts have language that touch upon employment law issues. For example, a lot of contracts will have a statement in there that says the employer agrees to abide by all federal, state, and local laws. So if there is an employment law that's violated and your contract has that language in it, then your union could potentially grieve, which is mean this part of the contract is violated, um, and have a grievance with your employer about that. But not all contracts have that. So double whammy when you are protected with a union contract. You not only have the protection of a union contract, most of the time you got labor attorneys who actually make sure that those contracts are followed the way they should be. There are certainly labor lawyers out there that are making sure that those contracts are being adhered to. But a lot of times labor lawyers are sort of the second line of defense. Unions have union representatives, and those are usually your first point of contact. And those are the folks that are going to be dealing with individuals who have a grievance or are perhaps filing a grievance on behalf of all the members covered by a contract, depending on what's been violated. So not one, not two, but three layers of support, which just goes to show you, we've said it a thousand times on the show. When you're a member of a union, you're not alone. Let's take a look at some of those employment law issues that you mentioned. We've been reading a lot about employees during the pandemic going up against their companies, trying to ensure safety, trying to ensure fair treatment, understanding that a lot of these are unrepresented employees, meaning they don't have a union. Can you give our listeners some ideas of what they should expect from a workplace that is following the law? Well, hopefully a workplace that is following the law is paying in accordance with the wage that you're expecting to get. Hopefully folks are making better than minimum wage, but we of course have a minimum wage. Hopefully those workplaces are free from harassment and discrimination. Now, just because someone said something to you at work that you didn't like very much doesn't inherently mean that it's discrimination. Discrimination is typically understood as being based on a protected class, such as gender or ethnicity or religion or sexual orientation or gender identity. 
So just because someone said something to you that made you kind of butt hurt does not inherently mean that it's illegal. A lawyer said butt hurt. <laughs> but in terms of harassment, if someone is repeatedly saying bad things about you in the workplace, whether you're in a protected class or not, can that still be construed as harassment? Let's say a manager has decided that they're going to consistently criticize someone in front of their peers. Is that something where someone in a workplace might have a claim of harassment? Absolutely. They could have a claim of harassment, though everything, and I hate to give the lawyer answer, depends on the facts. And so it's really going to be depending on what's being said, what influence it's having on the individual person, whether or not there's a certain level of accuracy, perhaps, to what's being said or criticized. In my role as general counsel, for IBW Local 48, not only do I advise Local 48 about issues that involve our members and representation under our contracts, I also advise Local 48 as an employer. So we have a policies and procedures handbook. We make sure it's followed. And one of the things that we make sure we never do is criticize our coworkers and our staff in front of each other. That's something that should be done behind a closed door. That should be done in a way that's respectful and constructive. Now, is that illegal if it doesn't happen that way? Maybe, maybe not. More likely on the probably not side, unfortunately. If someone's experiencing that kind of harassment and criticism in the workplace, there's an HR department to go to. There's an anonymous 1-800 hotline that you can call to talk to someone, maybe at the corporate office. I always encourage people to ask those questions and do what they can to make sure that their workplace is a safe and healthy place for them to be. So, Diana, you mentioned a safe workplace, and we know that during the year that's just passed, safety was a major concern that a lot of employees had in their workplace. If someone feels like their employer isn't making safety a top priority, what legal remedies do they have? So it probably depends on what the safety concern is. If it's something that's managed by state law, there's going to be the occupational health and safety at the state level. And there's also federal, so it sort of depends on where you're working and what applies to you. In Washington, there's also the labor and industries. So that's a point of contact for workers if they feel like they are having safety issues. Certainly, there's been a number of complaints filed by workers regarding safety concerns about COVID exposure and those sorts of things. And really, occupational safety and health is the folks that are most likely to be in charge of enforcing that. Now, if you're a represented worker, you most certainly should reach out to your union as well. Just because your union doesn't necessarily have language about COVID in your contract or in a memorandum of understanding, because Lord knows a lot of unions did additional documentation that's binding. So there could be a violation of those new rules. But even if there isn't something like that in place, call your union. I always recommend that to all of our members whenever I talk to them. Just because there isn't inherently a violation of the contract doesn't mean we don't care and doesn't mean that we won't try to help. Doesn't mean we can't have a conversation with your employer to try to figure out what's going wrong and how it can be fixed. Well, if you're going to give me a choice between maybe, you know, contact somebody at the state or federal level or contact my union rep, wow, contacting my union rep sounds a lot easier. And I think people get scared to report things because. A lot of times employers will retaliate against that worker, even if they're reporting things such as a safety violation. 
And I think that is one of the reasons why there is so much support for unions. At this present moment, we have heard time and time again about how much Americans want to be able to join unions. And that's why we have a certain bill in front of Congress right now called the PRO Act, which is going to make that easier. Now, for our listeners who are in the Pacific Northwest who aren't represented, they can call LNI. They can call the Occupational Health and Safety Administration. When should they think about reaching out to an attorney? Again, I hate to give the lawyer answer, but it probably depends. A lot of times our state agencies mean well, but are tragically underfunded. An attorney might be able to help faster and more efficiently with whatever issue that you might be experiencing in the workplace. An attorney can also give you an idea as to whether or not you have a viable case. Again, it's going to be dependent on the facts, but a lot of attorneys, when it comes to employment law issues, operate on what's called a contingency fee basis, meaning that they're not going to need any money from you unless they're successful with your case, which also means that they probably won't take your case if you don't have a good case. Yeah, of course doesn't mean that your workplace is perfect or that something's not going wrong, but just means that maybe no laws have been violated, which is sometimes a great way to consider talking about organizing your workplace. Just because there is an actual illegal activity doesn't mean that you can't come together and organize to have a better workplace. Hey, sis, I was thinking the same damn thing. When things get rough, don't be alone. Organize. One thing I want folks to know is that even if you are not in an organized workplace, the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Act, does still provide you protections. The NLRA contains within it Section 7 rights, which allow workers to come together in concerted activity for mutual aid and protection. Now, that can be a lot of different things, but one of the main things is that folks can talk to each other. And if you get retaliated against for talking to each other about your poor working conditions, you still have the protection of federal law. And that actually even extends to comments that you make on social media. It includes things like talking about how much you're getting paid, because if your employer tries to tell you that you're not allowed to talk about that, that is absolutely not the case. So even if you are not in an organized workplace, keep in mind that there are protections out there. And so although it is scary to have an employer retaliate against you and possibly even terminate you, do it with other people and you have the protection, hopefully, of the federal law. So in a situation where a worker does need to reach out to an attorney, where do they go? Obviously, if they're in a union, they can go to their union. If they're not, how do they find an attorney? So each state has a bar association. And in Washington, you can contact the Washington State Bar Association and utilize their referral service. They can hopefully help you find someone that's suited for your particular issue. And even members of unions might not always have someone necessarily they can call. IBW Local 48 members are pretty fortunate in that they can give me a call and I will give them a personal referral. Everyone listening to this podcast, please don't call me. I don't know that many people. But sometimes your employer, even if you're not organized, might have what they call an employee assistance program or EAP. Our members actually have EAP through Cascade Centers. And one of the things that they provide 
actually is a legal referral program where our members that have our EAP program get 30 free minutes of legal consultation and they get a discount if they hire that attorney. So there are a variety of ways that you might have access to legal help that you might not even know about. I just hope the listeners now know why I love Diana. How can you not? We're going to look into some of those federal laws in just a minute. But before we do, I just want to say thank you, Diana Winter, General Counsel at IBEW Local 48. It was a pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Now stick with us, working people. We'll be right back. Dear friends, this is Evan Papp from Empathy Media Lab's podcast on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. Based within the Washington, D.C. Beltway, you can find us at empathymedialab.com. We are a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, which is broadcasting working people's voices 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Check out our show and all the shows elevating the voice of working people throughout the world at laborradionetwork.org. Thanks for sticking with us, working people. We've talked a little about labor law in general, about some of the laws here in the Pacific Northwest, and about these things called the NLRA and the NLRB. We're going to take a step back and look at national labor law with Daniel hudson Beeler, a union attorney at McKenna Bishop Jaffe. Thanks so much for joining us, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. So like I said, we've heard reference to this thing called the NLRA and the NLRB. What are those? So the NLRA is the National Labor Relations Act. It is an act passed in 1935 at the federal level that deals with both union employer relations, uh, as well as general workplace rights. Broadly speaking, it protects employees and allows them to engage in what's called union activity, as well as concerted protected activity. And what that means is that even people that don't have a union in the workplace are protected in certain ways by the National Labor Relations Act. And then the act itself sets up the National Labor Relations Board, which is the NLRB. The NLRB refers to both this massive federal agency that has people throughout the country and different regional offices, but it also refers to five board members. They act as the judges in all NLRA-related cases, okay? They are appointed for five-year terms, the five-member board. They're staggered. So every year, somebody goes off and a new person is supposed to be appointed. But that's broadly speaking what the NLRA is and what the NLRB is. Now, you mentioned that the National Labor Relations Act was passed in 1935. We've also heard about this other law that was passed afterwards that did some modifications. Uh, I think it's called Taft-Hartley. Is that right? Taft-Hartley, which is also the LMRA or Labor Management Relations Act, passed in 1947. It was sort of a rollback or a pullback in response to the success that unions had in organizing after the initial passage of the NLRA. Um, Unions were quite successful having the NLRA protecting their rights and allowing them to organize, and in particular, utilizing certain things like secondary boycotts, which is one of the primary things that Taft-Hartley prohibited. So even though Taft-Hartley or the LMRA was passed, that didn't do away with the NLRA or the National Labor Relations Act, right? It modified it. As I said, it removed the ability of unions to engage in secondary boycotts. It also, for the first time, created 
union unfair labor practices. So the NLRA had created employer unfair labor practices, a set of different things that employers are prohibited from engaging in certain activities. They're not supposed to interfere with a union or interfere with an employee exercising union rights. They are not supposed to refuse to collectively bargain with a union. And uh, for the first time in 1947, some similar prohibitions were enacted in relation to unions as well. Now, let's talk about this board, the NLRB. There were a lot of headlines at the beginning of President Biden's term because he fired somebody from the NLRB, but it wasn't a member of the board. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. He fired the uh, general counsel of the board, who is basically the chief prosecutor. I mean, that's the best way to say it is the general counsel is sort of off to the side of the NLRB and is in charge of overseeing union elections. Uh, as well as is sort of a gatekeeper when it comes to unfair labor practice charges, but also has prosecutorial discretion to decide, you know, this seems like an unfair labor practice to me, and we're going to go after this person or this company. So Peter Robb was a management attorney, meaning that he spent his entire career essentially uh, advising employers on how to bust unions. That's what he did. If you go back to the 1980s, he was one of the guys who advised President Reagan to fire all the air traffic controllers. This is not a union-friendly person. And in fact, not only was he generally pro-management, he was actively and vehemently, I would say, anti-union. He was taking cases that had no basis in existing law and attempting to get courts and the NLRB to change practices that had uh, existed for 60 plus years. For example, I was on a case where he was challenging a project labor agreement in Seattle and had filed a complaint against all of the building trades unions there. And for months, the general counsel's office could not provide us with their theory of why the particular agreement was illegal. They just told us it was. He also tried to attack Scabby the Rat. Um, Pure free speech, pure First Amendment free speech. He lost repeatedly throughout numerous federal courts, et cetera, but that hadn't stopped him. And the reason that's important, as anybody listens to your podcast probably knows, like a picket, that is treated differently from a First Amendment perspective than any other form of free speech. In particular, I should say labor picketing. Unions do not have the same free speech rights under the First Amendment as anybody else. So Rob's intent was to get Scabby the Rat and the Fat Cat and all of those treated the equivalent of pickets meaning less protection under the First Amendment. Wow. So it's really important to vote because the person who is in the head office can put in place unfriendly worker people to run the organization that's supposed to protect workers. That is scary when you have someone who is pro-company, pro-corporation, get people to work for as low as possible, cheap as possible, doesn't care about safety conditions, and he's running the organization to protect workers. So when people say that your vote matters and that elections count, guess what? It does. Daniel, explain to us now how you think things may change with the current administration if the PRO Act gets passed. Yeah, that's a great question. I agree completely that elections definitely matter. And you don't want people that run agencies that don't believe in the mission of the agency. And that's been a longstanding problem. Whether it's the Department of Labor, whether it's the NLRB, that's an issue. What we're already seeing is obviously the termination of Peter Robb and his second in command. But more broadly, you know, currently the NLRB is made up of still three Republican appointees and only one Democrat. Another 
person was just announced today, Gwen Wilcox, who comes from a union side firm in New York, that'll make it a three to two. And then in August, one of the Republican members, um, their term expires and we'll see somebody else and it'll be a three two Democratic majority. And I also heard that our new appointee is an African-American woman, which is the first in history, correct? That is correct, which is just, I mean, it's exciting, but also, holy crap, can you believe it's been, it's been 86 years or so that the NLRB has existed and they haven't even proposed to have an African-American woman on the board. It's really just disheartening. Also exciting. I'm very happy that it's happening. And she's very, very well qualified. Um, Well, and the group of people who tend to be marginalized are women and women of color. So you know what? It's about time they have a voice on the organization that protects workers. I'm just saying. I agree completely. There's been a very long history of white old men who have been on that NLRB. And it is definitely time for some changes. And like I said, she is unbelievably qualified. So how is the PRO Act going to modify things at the NLRB? In a number of ways. You know, we'll see what version of it passes. But as of right now, I mean, you have to understand that the NLRA, it has very lofty aspirations. And it says, these are the things that we protect. You know, if you employee have an issue where you've been retaliated against, or you union, your employer is not providing you information or not recognizing you, we will take care of that. That's that's the aspiration of it. And that is absolutely not the reality. The reality is that organizing new workers and bringing new workers into unions is extraordinarily difficult under the NLRA because employers have figured out thanks to people like former GC Rob, uh, lawyers like that, they figured out that they can skirt the rules just like Amazon did in Alabama. They can cheat, they can lie, they can threaten, and they do all of these things repeatedly. They do. They threaten to close their plant. They threaten to transfer workers or give them less work hours. They fire them. Oftentimes, they find out who the union leaders are. They take them out because they know that there's no real penalty at the end. The penalty, if I get fired for engaging in union activity, is the employer has to reinstate me and pay any back wages, right? That sounds you know, fine in theory, but the reality is that only comes about a year or so after I get fired, right? And then even if I win that case and they don't appeal, let's just set that aside. At that point, they calculate the back pay, but they subtract anything I've earned on unemployment or if I, of course, got another job because I had to feed my family, right? So that's all subtracted out of that. Oh, and the best part, besides like, oh, I have to take the guy back and pay him like 15 bucks, I got to post a notice that says I won't do that again, okay? That's the extent of the remedies for somebody losing their job, right? And so the way the PRO Act would help to fix that is by actually imposing penalties on employers and including my favorite part of this, personal liability for the employer's agent who did the illegal action. If I'm on the hook for these penalties, not just back pay that could be nothing, but an actual penalty and that could escalate, um, depending on the severity of it and the amount, I mean, man, that's going to change some people's behavior, right? That might actually change some local behavior here in Vancouver because we have an amazing local paper called The Columbian. And The Columbian newsroom is actually trying to get their first contract. But unfortunately, the owner of The Columbian has hired an anti-union law firm out of Tennessee to come in and fight these negotiations. So that in itself would be helpful because now not only is the owner of the Colombian responsible, but that person from Tennessee who's flying here is also going to be liable. So guess what? It stops and the people get a voice. 
without harassment and retaliation. That's the PRO Act. So something like half of new bargaining units fail to achieve an initial contract, right? Because employers such as the Colombian hire anti-union law firms to drag the negotiations out and make them exceedingly difficult and blah, blah, blah. So the PRO Act would address that by saying, if you don't come to a resolution within, I think, like four months, we're going to submit any outstanding issues to arbitration and somebody's going to decide what the contract is, right? That is huge for people. They no longer have to wait a year to even hope to get an actual contract. They know they're going to get a contract. It's just a matter of what it says. We've talked a lot about the NLRA and the NLRB in the context of organized labor, of unions. Why should people who aren't in unions care about the NLRB? That's a great question. There's a couple of reasons. One is just generally that unions tend to raise everybody's working conditions. Even if you are not unionized, your employer, often to avoid unionization, will improve your working conditions, including in particular your wages, in order to avoid a union, right? But more specifically with the NLRA and the NLRB, the act itself protects non-union workers by protecting them when they engage in concerted protected activity, which means even non-union employees, if they come together and they say collectively, hey, we have some concerns, we want to address you know, our safety, we want to address our wages, et cetera, they can do that without fear of retaliation. Now, the same caveats apply, but it is protected activity. So it protects you even if there's no union involved, even if you've never even heard of a union, you are protected by the NLRA. Well, Daniel, I know that you may have to get off this call and testify before a legislature on some important labor law issues as well. But before you go, is there anything else you'd like the audience to know? You know, I think people need to recognize and understand, like the Supreme Court did when they upheld the National Labor Relations Act, that the right to organize and be part of a union is a fundamental right. The First Amendment protects freedom of speech. It also protects freedom of association. That is a fundamental right. And I think people need to understand there are these laws out there that protect them. People don't know. And it's a fundamental part of our country. It's workplace democracy in action. And, you know, as study after study has shown, people that join unions have better outcomes when it comes to their wages, hours, and working conditions, and often their health as well, because they are working in safer conditions and they frankly often have better health care than people in similar industries. So um, I guess that's what I would leave you with. Well, Daniel Hudson Beeler, union attorney at McKenna Bishop Jaffe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you, Working People, for joining us on another episode of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council and sponsored by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. You know, Harold, you can just say IBEW. Right. IBEW Local 48. <laughs> and you know, Harold, we've talked a lot about contracts in this show, but there's one more important contract that I want to mention. The contract we have to make sure that this podcast was recorded under a SAG-AFTRA collective bargaining agreement. And that's how I know I'm being treated fairly by my employer, folks. Remember, working people, this is your show. We want to know what you want to hear on it. Email us at podcast at swwaclc.org. Or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at SWWACLC. And of course, I'm going to remind you, subscribe to the show. Pass the link on to your friends, neighbors, families, dogs, anybody who wants to listen. Pass it on.
And while you're at it, give us five stars or seat a new NLRB board member or whatever your podcast platform of choice gives you to let people know you like what we're doing here. One last thing, folks. As Daniel pointed out, these big lofty ideas of labor law are actually really important to everyday working people, whether you're in a union or not, because it affects what we do day to day in our workplace. So when you see a story about something happening on the National Labor Relations Board, don't just let your eyes roll up in the back of your head and click over to the next cat photo or celebrity gossip piece. Pay attention to it. The people on that board have a serious impact on your day-to-day life. And I'm just going to say, when you're unhappy at work, your life sucks. If you're unhappy at work, do something about it. Get together, organize, and make sure that you're treated well with respect. Because one thing I've learned from COVID, and many of my friends have learned from COVID, is that we need work-life balance. We need to be happy, healthy, and safe at home and in our workplaces. So join together. You shouldn't be going to work miserable. Heck no, because for most of us, we are at work more than we're anywhere else. So you don't want to be unhappy in the place that you're spending most of your time at. (laughs) You know, I was just having this conversation with my husband. We said we go to work so we can pay our mortgage and car which are usually our two biggest payments in our life. Uh, Unfortunately, in America, it could also be your health bills, but we go to student loans, health bills, but we go to work to pay for all these things and we're never there. Hmm. Work-life balance needs to come back. And you need to be able to come together with the people at work in order to make things better. Remember what Diana said, you're allowed to associate with the people at work. You're allowed to talk about how much money you make. So talk to your fellow workers at your job. Figure out if other people are unhappy. And if they are, talk about what you can do to fix it. We definitely suggest you reach out to a union and talk about forming a union. But even if you don't, talk about ways to fix it and bring that to your boss. Because it's the law. The boss can't fire you for that. And if they do, you have our number. We'll see you soon. Bye.